Welcome back, listeners. Okay, this is the episode where we really focus on the big one. The main reason our house is indeed on fire. Climate change. The result of the U.S. election is a shot in the arm for everyone who wants to see the world achieve the Paris Agreement goals. But at the same time, the pandemic has exposed the heights of the mountain we have to scale. The global emissions reductions wrought by this miserable year are only the rough equivalent of what we need to do every year between now and 2030 if we are to have a chance of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees centigrade, which kind of puts things in perspective. So never has the challenge been clearer. Never has time been shorter. Every option we have to reduce greenhouse gases needs to be put on the table. Partly, that's a question of reducing our emissions in the present and future. But what about actually removing emissions from our past? There aren't that many ways to do this, but one is direct air capture, a sort of human-engineered industrial equivalent of growing trees. Fans of the technology say it could be the silver bullet we've been looking for. Critics that it's an overpriced distraction. So, which is it? That's the question for this week. is still on fire. This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. We have to rise to this occasion. The transition isn't going to be easy. It wasn't the biggest of challenges to find the interviewees for this week's episode because there really aren't that many players involved in the direct air capture business. In fact, there are only a tiny handful with working plants up and running in the real world, and we were able to speak to a couple of them. Climeworks, based out of Switzerland, and Carbon Engineering from Canada. Unless you're already super familiar with all this, or have a degree in engineering, the first question might be how it works. I asked Steve Oldham, Chief Executive of Carbon Engineering, to give us a layman's explanation of their technology. We have a large, essentially a large fan that pulls air in. Behind the fan, we have a PVC uh, fill or membrane. That PVC membrane uh, is then coated with a, with a chemical. And as the air comes through the fan and through the PVC membrane, it reacts with the chemical. And that, that chemical reaction captures about 70 to 80% of the CO2 uh, which then, of course, leaves through the other side of the PVC membrane and diffuses back into the atmosphere. So then at the bottom of that filter, you now have a chemical that's CO2 rich. And the next three steps of the process do a series of other chemical reactions to pull the CO2 out as a pure gas. Over at Climeworks, they've got a different but similar approach. What Chief Executive Jan Wurzbacher describes as a solid solvent system, as opposed to the liquid solvent we just heard about. All that really means, as you may have guessed, is they capture the carbon dioxide on a solid material rather than a liquid. Later on, they can heat the solid material to produce high concentration carbon dioxide as a gas. So is one way better than the other? Obviously, I had to ask Jan. Both have their advantages and disadvantages. I used to say it's a little bit like a diesel and a gasoline engine. Both have their uh, areas where one is a bit better than the other and the other way around. So I, I see them as, as complementary technologies. Very diplomatic. These guys are all betting big on this technology, and so are their investors. So far, Climeworks has taken around $160 million, and Carbon Engineering has also had over $100 million in funding. And they've been at this for a long time already. Here's Yen again, 
who started on Climeworks with his buddy Christoph Jibald over a decade ago. Finally, Christoph and I met at the first day of, at university, and we always had the dream of becoming entrepreneurs, founding our own company one day. That was in 2003 and 2009. And we had like the status we were at, we, we just finished our master studies. And we actually did start a PhD at the same time when we founded the company. This was important so we could, like that provided us with a salary we could live with. Um, we could use the facilities at the university to like the lab space and, and all that stuff to develop the technology further. And yeah, it was really our, our first job, so to say, or in other words, what we used to say, we never worked. <laughs> we just worked at Climeworks. For these guys, arguments about whether direct air capture works are way over, and they definitely don't see this as a sideshow technology. The vision they have is huge. Talk to Jan about where he wants to end up. The picture he paints is one of a sort of 21st century Rockefeller. When we started uh, back in 2009, people said, well, this can never work, and it's just not possible to do this. Then it took us a couple of years. We showed to the world that it can work, and not only us, also others have, have shown that in the meantime. Now the question is, how fast can we be with scaling this technology and reducing the costs to a level that we can roll out this on a billion tons level? And, and that, that's the big challenge, but it's not a question if it can work or if it cannot work. We believe that what we are doing, if we look at it, from a top-level perspective, the topic of carbon removal from the atmosphere that has to become something uh, like, like a worldwide global industry at the order of magnitude as today's oil and gas industry. But the math is, is quite simple. There has been an entire industry over a century, more than a century, creating emissions. Uh, so that's, that's the fossil fuel industry. And if we, live in, if we listen to science telling us that in order to achieve the climate goals according to the Paris Agreement, so in order to limit global warming to 1.5 or at least to 2 degrees Celsius, what we need to do by mid of the century is remove something like 10 or 15 billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. So that's something like a quarter or a third of today's total global CO2 emissions. So like mathematically, it makes sense that what we need to do is create an industry with a similar impact, with a similar size than the entire fossil industry. So we kind of say this every week, but that's a big ambition. And it begs some pretty big questions too, like who would pay for it? I mean, the fossil fuel industry didn't get to be so big by accident, but by selling fossil fuels to power our economies. Is there an equivalent demand to suck carbon out of the air? The answer to that is clearly no, but that doesn't mean there never will be. 2020 saw a string of pretty major announcements from big companies on carbon neutrality and even carbon negativity, Microsoft and Apple being the obvious trailblazers, but far from the only examples. Here's the thing. If they're going to keep those promises, it's easy to see how a carbon negative technology like direct air capture could be very useful. Both Yan and Steve are placing a lot of hope in these early adopters. What you're starting to see um, is big companies looking at how to eliminate their carbon footprint. You know, we are seeing more and more companies almost daily announcing their intention to be carbon neutral by a certain date. So having a target is great. Then you have to start putting the plan in place that's going to allow you to achieve that target. And you're beginning to see governments and companies acting on that. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, they said they're going to put money into direct air capture so that 
this tool will be available to help them address net zero in the future. You're seeing companies like Microsoft and Amazon. We just signed a, a contract with Shopify, which is Canada's uh, most valuable company. They want to, to find ways to eliminate their footprint. So um, I think there will be a mix of consumers, individuals who want to eliminate a carbon footprint and don't know how to do it, um, companies that are looking for the most cost-effective and least disruptive way in which they can eliminate their carbon footprint. And finally, governments that realize that you know, there are a certain number of policies and, and practices they can put into place, but they'll still have a gap. A lot of things have changed over the past 12 to 18 months. Many corporates have become aware that fulfilling climate targets will be a major item on their agenda. There's no way for them to get around. And one prominent example is the payment provider Stripe. They have also purchased carbon dioxide removal services from Climeworks. They made a nice story around that, uh, which is public. And and there's there's much more going on. So those first movers, they certainly uh, are very, very important in the current phase, uh, helping us to scale from, say, a level of thousands of tons to hundred thousands or to a million tons. If we then want to move from a million tons to a billion tons per year, we need a certain level of reg regulation. And here we hit the R word. This is going to be an indispensable part of the discussion about whether direct air capture is going to play more than a cameo in the global drama that is our push for net zero. At the moment, we've got first movers with deep pockets and big climate agendas who are willing and able to pay the cost. It's worth it to them for the reputational benefit. But not everyone can afford that. To get to global adoption, to see direct air capture become anything like the scale Jan and Steve imagine, it's going to take a few tweaks to markets which means governments will need to get involved. This is very familiar terrain to Anthony Hobley, head of the optimistically named Mission Possible platform at the World Economic Forum, whose aim is to support public and private sector partners working towards net zero by 2050. Like anything, um, what will drive it is when it is financially viable. So there is a, you know, someone, someone is willing to pay the cost of that technology so it's going to need the right policy frameworks in place um, to actually incentivize them companies are looking for you know business models that allow them to go to net zero so looking for ways to either continue to operate the existing business models and new business models that work in a net zero environment now if for example you know you were allowed to offset um, whatever you, your emissions against direct air capture um, that might work, but it, it would still have to, you know, balance out in terms of the cost of, you know, the, what you get paid for your products or your services. Um, you still make a profit when you've paid for the direct air capture. You, you will either need a sufficiently high price of carbon and a system that recognises the value of, of the carbon removed by direct air capture, or it is required by governments or paid for by governments. As you might expect, both Steve and Yan are enthusiastic advocates for this kind of government role. I also spoke to Francesca Battersby, who has recently written a thesis on the governance aspects surrounding greenhouse gas removal in the UK, and now works for Foresight Transitions, a UK-based technology consultancy. She's well-paced to know what she's talking about when it comes to possible government intervention. For her, 
As for Steve as well, actually, policymakers looking for best practices on how to create a market where direct air capture could fly should look to the USA. I mean, direct air capture is quite an unusual technology, as I said, in the sense that it only has carbon dioxide removal as its sole product. Um, So to actually create a policy that incentivizes that um, is possibly kind of difficult. Um, The US has had a lot more success because they've incorporated that into their... uh, 45Q tax credit regime, which actually rewards carbon storage um, and rewards um, lesser to a lesser extent um, the use of CO2 to extract um, more oil, but um, as a result, storing that CO2 underground. So that's quite an interesting option. Um, and it that's kind of a, a really attractive proposition also for providers because that's a guaranteed 12-year payment um, that, that uh, providers know that they're going to be paid out and, and that can really help them create a business model around removing carbon. Um, there are a few issues there. Of course, the amount of money that's available right now isn't enough. Um, we, mean, we need multi-decade kind of time horizons for payment as well. I mean, 12 years really isn't enough in terms of the amount of capital and the amount of um, time and resource that's going to need to go into developing these, these technologies. The alternative to this sort of market-based approach would, of course, be more direct government action. And there's certainly a plausible case to be made here. I can argue very easily that dealing with the problem we have with the atmosphere and the air is a government responsibility. The analogy there is water treatment. You know, 100 years ago, maybe maybe longer than that now, people realised that water in cities was a significant problem. And so we developed the technology for water treatment, and that's now a government responsibility. And wherever you go around the world, you expect clean water. So that's something that we as taxpayers happily pay because we know that having clean water is essential. Well, I think having clean air, and I don't mean pollution, I mean air and atmosphere that isn't causing a climate problem, is also a right we should have as citizens. So one argument would be, This is a government responsibility and government should field an air treatment infrastructure. Will any of these interventions happen? It's worth bearing in mind that government subsidies globally to the fossil fuels industry are in the region of $5 trillion. So compared with those, these kinds of suggestions don't sound that crazy, assuming governments do want to hit the Paris Agreement goals that they signed up to. And if anything, the stakes have only been raised since the Paris Agreement was inked. That was four years ago. Since then, we've added over 100 gigatons more carbon to the atmosphere and made little progress at slowing emissions growth. At the same time, we've come to understand even more clearly how catastrophic some of the consequences of unchecked warming will be. The loss of the Amazon or the polar ice caps, these are problems that many scientists believe will make COVID look small. And every year that passes reduces our freedom of movement. So, the logic you get from some quarters is that governments don't really have the luxury of choice anymore. The question whether we should do this or we should do other things like switching to renewable energy or reducing emissions at other sites, that's a question that was very valid to ask 20 years ago. However, today it's too late to ask this either-or question. The answer is very simple. We just have to do both. Even if we get to net zero, what is commonly not fully understood is the amount of of negative technologies that are going to have to kick in post-2050, between 2050 and 2100. Um, They are still going to be a critical part of the overall equation. So if you look at negative 
emissions technologies from trees through to carbon capture and storage and then direct air capture, we're going to have to deploy all of those. So technologies like trees, um, which can play a massive role over the next decade um, and sort of obviously reverse a lot of biodiversity loss at the same time. Um, and then carbon capture technologies from the 2030s onwards to supplement decarbonisation pathways. And then, you know, it would not be a, it would, it would also be a sensible, um, you know, precaution to invest in uh, direct air capture technologies to also play a part where we struggle if we get behind schedule and, to, you know, to also be used at scale post 2050. So I think they are an important part of, of the toolkit um, and they, they could be a very important um, insurance uh, against um, roadblocks we run into if we're not quite if we don't quite get there by 2050. So fundamentally, if you again you take a step back on our climate change problem, we have too much CO2 in the atmosphere, and we continue to put more in. So to solve that problem requires two things: you have to stop every single emission on the planet, every single one, and there are billions of separate emissions all over the planet of many different types in many different locations. The second problem is even if you do stop all of those emissions, you have to deal with yesterday's emissions and the day before and the day before that to bring the CO2 volumes back down to a stable level. So we see direct air capture as contributing to both. There's two ways to get to net zero, either zero or one plus minus one. So where direct air capture plays is it can eliminate the emission of a hard to abate sector. So for example, we allow a jet to fly using fossil fuel and it emits X tons of CO2 and we use direct air capture to remove X tons of CO2. That's net zero. So for hard to abate emissions, we think direct air capture will do. With direct air capture, you can eliminate any emission of any type from anywhere, but also any moment in time and that's that legacy emission problem. You know, no amount of electric cars, renewable electricity is going to solve yesterday's emissions and direct air capture can. So those are the two roles we see of direct air capture. Okay, so this, this is a point worth repeating. Even the most aggressive emissions reductions we can imagine will not do anything about the carbon we already have put into the air. And while there are a lot of ways we can cut our emissions in the future, there really aren't a lot of ways to deal with what's already out there. That's what makes this technology so compelling for its fans. So let's say that governments do decide to scale this industry up to the sort of levels Yan is dreaming about. We would be sucking gigatons of carbon out of the atmosphere every year. Is that even a safe thing to do? Francesca's thesis focused a lot on the risks of carbon removal technologies. So she was the obvious person to ask. And the answer was yes, physically. But she had other worries. The thing that we're slightly concerned about is carbon removal being treated as kind of this next exciting environmental frontier uh, that brings a lot of kind of branding clout and, and maybe isn't treated with the sort of um, care that's required. Um, and we, we really try and emphasise that carbon removal needs to be treated um, w with caution and it needs to be used in a very limited capacity to treat emissions that really won't be able to be reduced in other ways. Um, and I know that I've kind of said that, that direct air capture isn't necessarily constrained, but when it comes to other technologies, um, they definitely do have finite capacity. Um, and of course, there is an, only a limited amount of um, storage capacity in the world where we can put captured CO2. So we really want to avoid kind of creating an economy 
that completely depends on, on the capture of carbon. Uh, we need to still make sure that those incentives are in place to transform uh, the way we do business, uh, to make sure that carbon isn't part of that and is decoupled from that. So yeah, making sure that companies are sort of engaged to understand what carbon removal is really for and, and why it needs to be treated with care. It's really important. And I think carbon removal is kind of susceptible to these manipulations, especially, you know, you can rearrange numbers to make it look like carbon removal is taking place when perhaps it's not. Um, carbon removal takes place when carbon is actually taken out of the atmosphere. And that's, you know, distinct from carbon removal, like direct air capture being applied to fossil power generation, because that carbon's literally coming straight out of the ground and then going back into it. So that's not helping us. Another thing Francesca raised is storage space. Where do you actually put all this carbon? I mean, we're not talking about tiny quantities here. In short, there are two options. The first is to basically bury it. Here's Ian. Available storage space worldwide is not a bottleneck. So there is way more underground storage space and safe and permanent underground storage space for CO2 storage then would be required to remove all the emissions we would potentially create over the next 100 years. What we are doing in Iceland is really on the forefront. The team of the company Carpfix in Iceland has developed over the past decade or more than that a technology to inject CO2 into basalt rock systems where the CO2 mineralizes within two years. That means you inject the CO2 about 1,000 meters deep underground and within two years it's turned into stone. It basically turns into carbonate rock underground, which is the safest imaginable way of storing CO2. That is something that can be scaled globally, even on and around Iceland. Just to name one example, there would be capacity for like thousands of, of millions of tons, so billions of tons uh, storage capacity. And there are many other regions worldwide. Uh, basaltic rock, that's one of the most abundant rock material on Earth. Where can you safely and permanently store CO2? Generally speaking, it's the same locations that you used to pull uh, materials and resources out of the ground. So for example, we're building our first facility in the Permian Basin. It's a huge oil producing region, but it's also the same reason why oil is underground there. Geologically, it's perfect for storing CO2. Canada, uh, where, where our company is based, Alberta and Saskatchewan, also great locations in uh, the United Kingdom. Sorry, in Europe, uh, the North Sea is a tremendous location. Um, and there are many around the world and, and you can find a lot of studies that are looking at this. The second option is not to store the carbon at all, but to turn it into something you can use. Most probably ultra low emission fuel. Now, if you do this, you're not actually removing carbon from the atmosphere over the long term, even though it would help reduce emissions of certain sectors. From Yen's perspective, though, it does offer a prospect of making some revenue in the short term, whilst the world builds the business model for carbon removal. The current core business model is carbon dioxide removal as a service. Besides that, we are also supplying our technology or, or supplying CO2 for the reuse of CO2, in particular within the framework of the production of renewable carbon neutral fuels. We are part, as an example, of a consortium in Norway that's called Norsk eFuel. At around 2023 in Norway, the first industrial power to liquids plant, which is producing synthetic liquid fuels, so jet fuel, diesel fuel from CO2 captured from the air and 
renewable electricity will be launched and will start will start operation. That's that's the current plan, and that that's that's a second important segment. Uh, it will be required to power those segments of today's industry, such as the transportation industry, in particular air traffic. Um, we will probably it'll take quite a while. Um, until we have other opportunities than relying on hydrocarbon fuels, on jet fuel there. And this is a powerful way of decarbonizing those industries. And so it's, it's, it's the second important sector. One of the most obvious questions for the future of this technology, and something else Francesca raised, is energy use. Clearly, an industry involving a lot of machinery, chemicals and high temperatures, aiming to scale up to the extent that both Climeworks and carbon engineering would like to see, is going to use a lot of power. Is that easy to square with being a climate change saviour? Back to Steve. Yes, we need energy. Um, so what's our plan for that? So we build our facilities. CO2 is everywhere in the atmosphere. The air is everywhere. So we go and build our plants in locations where there is no renewable electricity today. So there are many, many locations across the planet where perfect to generate renewable electricity, but there's no local demand and to put transmission lines in to take that electricity and bring it all the way to the nearest city or whatever is just too expensive. So that's where we put our plant. So we will use energy for sure, but it will be additional energy that we don't currently tap. Uh, renewable energy, wind um, and uh, solar predominantly. Jan says Climeworks is also looking to power its operations with renewables, which will obviously impact where they can situate their plants that and the small issue of making sure there is somewhere to store all the carbon. Inevitably, these factors make some countries a lot more suitable for direct air capture than others, and there are plenty of reasons why one government might be much keener than another to embrace this technology. Here in the UK, the government has announced its wish to be a world leader in it, something both Steve and Francesca seem to think is quite plausible. First of all, we've kind of we've got the North Sea Basin, which is an incredibly good um, resource for storing carbon. Associated with that, we've also obviously also got significant experience uh, with oil and gas exploration. Uh, we know exactly how to take oil and gas out of the ground and putting carbon back in it is basically the same process in reverse. And, you know, in addition, we've also got a series of infrastructure, including pipelines and, and um, offshore and onshore facilities that enable um, that carbon removal uh, and storage to be slightly easier. And the government's explored options for how that kind of decommissioned oil and gas infrastructure might be reused for the purpose of carbon storage. So that's the kind of uh, physical uh, component to, to why the UK is well suited. I think there's also a question of our historical obligation um, to remove the carbon that we're responsible for as part of our um, legacy through the Industrial Revolution, uh, as well as ongoing activities in sectors that the UK makes a big contribution to in terms of aviation, in terms of agriculture, in terms of heavy industry. So I'd say from both of those sides of the coin, that's uh, a really important argument for the UK really getting involved. And I think the opportunity uh, that it presents to the UK also shouldn't be ignored. We've got universities, we've got quite extensive research experience in this area and the opportunity to innovate, to, to really be leaders uh, globally. The scale that, that we're talking about could provide a huge number of jobs um, across the supply chain, upstream and downstream. Not every country will be able to make such a strong case, but the UK is far from the only geography with plenty going for it. And politicians all over the world will be eyeing the potential available to them to hit their avowed goals. 
As regular listeners know, we love it when we can point you in the direction of stuff you can actually do to get involved in the solutions we discuss. And this is one of those occasions. Because ultimately, the goal for Yan is that direct air capture won't just be something for big corporations and governments, but individuals. Since last year, we are offering our product also to private people. And I believe that is a very powerful tool. And not necessarily since everyone will be able to reduce her or his emissions to the full extent. Uh, and currently that is still quite costly, but it's, it's a way of engaging people. Climarex's vision is to inspire one billion people to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And, and one way of doing so is offering what we are doing basically to everyone, uh, to, to the general uh, public. We have a lot of subscribers, um, more than 2,000 subscribers in the meantime who are paying Climeworks to remove a certain amount of, of carbon from them from the atmosphere and, and uh, store it or turn it into stone. And I believe that is a business segment which has a lot of scaling potential. It's, it's actually our first digital business model and it can reach out to so many people, which then in turn could trigger politicians and policymakers to make available the required policies to roll out what we are doing at even one or two orders of magnitude, larger scale. We're going to have to bring this to a close. So what about the question, is direct air capture a sideshow or a silver bullet? Well, as with so many of the debates of our times, the answer is probably neither extreme. Direct air capture is an exciting technology for sure. I don't know if it's going to hit the scale of today's fossil fuel industry, like Yen hopes, but I definitely don't think it's a sideshow. Unless there is some kind of sudden abandonment of the Paris Agreement, the scale of action needed to first reduce emissions, but also to remove historic emissions from the atmosphere, means that a lot of countries and companies, some of which have more money than countries, will have to invest in negative carbon technologies of one kind or another. With direct air capture technology now proven and scalable, it seems inevitable that it will start to look more and more attractive to those actors. Expect to see more governments drawing up policy proposals. After all, there are limits to how many trees we can grow. Please join us next week for our final episode of the season. <laughs> We're taking a look at one of the biggest polluting sectors out there, global shipping. Can it clean up its act? We get the lowdown from the people who know. Farewell.